0: This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. The sun is a mass of incandescent gas,
1: a gigantic nuclear furnace, where hydrogen is built into helium. At a temperature of millions of degrees Yo-ho, it's hot The sun is not a place where we could live But here on Earth there'd be no life Without the
0: light it gives We need its light Hi, and we welcome to episode 132 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today, as usual, is Nathan Gilmore, who's an assistant professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Did I get all that right, Nathan?
1: Yeah, sounds good, man. I've got a little bit of a spring cold, so I apologize to our listeners if I sound a little uh, snot-brained. You get uh, this... so
0: many colds.
1: I don't sleep much.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's true. Uh also joining us, uh professor of English at Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas, David Grubbs. Hello, hello. Am I pronouncing McPherson right? I I I remember you corrected me once.
2: Oh yeah. Well as long as you don't say McPherson, uh if if you do that here, uh people will look at you solemnly and say, There's no fear in McPherson.
0: Except when there's a tornado.
2: It, well, and there hasn't been for eighty years.
1: There you go.
0: Also joining us today is special guest, Dr. Todd Pedler from Luther College. And oh my gosh, I don't even know where it is in Iowa. What's the <laughs> name of your town, Todd?
3: It is uh, Decorah, Iowa. Yep. It's in the northeast corner of the state.
0: Yeah, you're not too far from me.
3: Not at all. No.
0: Anyway, Todd is going to be part of the Book of Nature pod- podcast that will be launching on this network in the fall. So uh, we're smack in the middle of this three-part series on... Science, And so that is why Todd is here today, to help us talk about physics. But first, we have quite a bit of listener feedback. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's begin with an email that we neglected to read last week uh, through no fault of the emailers. It came in actually before all the other ones and got lost in my inbox. This is from Kristen Philippic. She says that she enjoyed the Give the People What They Want C.S. Lewis episode, except the first time she played it, she dozed off, but the podcast kept playing, so then I started dreaming that we were all sitting around in a living room having a delightful conversation about C.S. Lewis, but every time I tried to join in with a point, you all just kept talking as if I wasn't even there. Downright <laughs> weird. Maybe that's because I wasn't there when you were actually recording, but still, that seems no excuse.
1: I, I believe the term is mansplaining. <laughs>
0: going to get us in trouble. <laughs> what it, else is new? This is almost as good as that. Remember when we first started doing the show, we got an email from uh, Sam Mulberry from Christian, uh, Christianity and Western Culture, and he said that uh, his iPod started playing in church and he heard us talking during the prayer? <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: I do remember that, yeah. Anyway, she
0: says, listening again fully conscious this time, I want to nitpick a little on Nathan's reference to Lewis's veiled universalism. Now, I speak as one who tends to hang out among evangelicals significantly more conservative than I am, not like Nathan at all. And so yeah, I know yeah. what you're talking about, and making reference to C.S. Lewis on the subject has been good, clean fun for me for many years now. But no universalist writes screw tape. He he seems to me to be an inclusivist, recognizing that some may well be saved by Christ, albeit not through explicit Christianity. But he is clear that that doesn't encompass everyone. The last battle sees Emeth, the good Kellerman confused about what he's doing in Aslan's heaven after honorably serving Tash his whole life. But also the villain gets gobbled up by Tash, and the dwarves are steadfastly for the dwarves and cannot recognize the joy which surrounds them. Lewis may not be a strict exclusivist, but he's no Rob Bell either. Those are not the only options.
1: Fair enough, fair enough. I'll, I'll grant that... Uh... How shall I say it? Correction in terminology.
0: We have uh, we have gotten more corrections on that Lewis episode than any other episode <laughs> ever. Which I, I I don't know if that's because we were more wrong than we usually are, or if it's just people happen to know something about the subject we were talking about.
1: Well, did, well. didn't you hear about the uh, email campaign that uh, Kindling's Muse started up?
0: Oh, to, to cancel yeah. us? That's
1: right. Cancel Gilmore hashtag. Wait, what?
0: People who are listening to this next year will have no idea what we're talking about. Uh, yeah, I
1: know. David, I know.
0: Uh, Stephen Colbert made a anti-racist, racist joke, you know, the way Stephen Colbert does. And there's, yeah, yeah, there's, yes. there's a campaign on Twitter to have him fired.
2: Uh, okay, see, there were there were layers there that I was just not getting. I'm like, man, this is... Does yeah, Kindling's muse really hate us that much.
0: I, I'm not sure they know we exist. I wish they did, though. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Glad uh, Kristen says to have Doctor David Grubbs back while still getting to keep Danny Anderson in a different form. And I'm looking forward to the growth of the Christian Humanist podcasting empire. Although I'm sort of bummed that the Christian Blankist Naming Convention has to change. As the Book of Nature folks cannot very well host the Christian Sciences podcast. That name has been taken.
3: <laughs> much, much as we'd like to, yeah, uh, <laughs> just out of spite, I think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> which honestly is probably kind of the genesis of Christian humanist. Exactly.
0: <laughs> I think we talked about the genesis in an early episode, but basically I got a, uh, I got a uh, remark back from a UGA professor that said my, my literary analysis was too humanist.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I remember, I remember that.
0: I won't say the professor's name. <laughs> okay, David, we have, you have an email to read us.
2: Yeah. 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 Uh, this is from Jordan Poss. Post POS, yeah, pos, turn POS. Right. Dear Christian humanists, as long as those of us with German surnames are dominating the C.S. Lewis emails, haha <laughs> I thought I'd offer up one more bit of Tolkien Lewis trivia. As the other writer pointed out in this week's episode, Elwyn Ransom is certainly inspired by Tolkien, and there's even a hint of that in his name, Elwyn being derived from Alfween, or elf friend in Old English, as appropriate, akinning as any for Tolkien, which, um, yeah, that's that's super cool. And also the the the, the name and the phrase elf friend has, has a lot of significance for Tolkien. Um, but I'd forgotten Ransom's first name, so good call, Jordan.
0: There you go. Good times. Nathan, you have an email?
1: Yeah, we do indeed, from another German surname, Paul Schliefer. Uh, he wants to correct something not from the C.S. Lewis episode, but from the... Neil Postman, amusing ourselves to death episode. Uh, here's what he says about it: Such movements, the ones to oppose the vaccination of children, have been around as long as vaccines have, and they have been and they have been spread in a variety of ways. Uh, this link, and he provides a link in the email. Uh, Michael, perhaps you can put it in the show notes. Points out that it was a lawyer and a doctor who started the current anti-vaccination movement. And the initial report was given credibility by a high-level, peer-reviewed academic journal just saying Paul Schliefer. Now, Michael, I, I didn't research this because I was prepping other things for this show, but didn't that uh, academic journal issue a recantation of that theory?
0: Yes, but his points still stand. It's not like the Internet invented anti-vaccination. It, oh, it, okay. it, to the degree we said that, we were wrong. I think what we were trying to say anyway – and we—it's mostly me, but I'm going to include Nathan on the list as, as if he'd said something. But uh, I, I, what I was trying to say, and I don't know if I said this clearly enough, is that the internet made the dissemination of anti-vaccination information, shall we say, um, much easier. And so I think we can we can blame it for Jenny McCarthy, even though even though the internet did not invent the anti-vaccination movement, as as Paul very helpfully points out, or Jenny yeah.
1: McCarthy for that matter. Yeah, yeah
0: she, she's firmly a product of the TV age.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. She was she was bred in a an MTV laboratory. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we Todd. have so
0: many emails this week that we actually had to give one to our guest. Todd, would you uh, would you read us the email?
3: Sure. So this is from Brett Gilbert. Um, he says, "Guys, some of my favorite episodes have been those in which you waxed biblical, examining parts of the Bible as literature." I'm writing to request more of that. I'd love to see more in the vein of the Elijah episode, taking on a biblical figure and examining what we're told about him or her from a literary point of view. I suggest Jacob, Samson, King Saul, and or Peter. I think episodes in which single books of the Bible are looked at as literature would be fun, too. Esther, Ruth, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon stand out as good examples. Boy, Song of Solomon. <laughs> uh, I'd, uh, I'd add Job, but there was already a great Profiles episode on that one. Keep up the good work, Brett. And then he's got a P.S., here we go, Michael. This is in reference to the Ghostbusters episode where he uh, <laughs> suggests character identification. So he starts off with Michael as Bankman. I don't think anyone's going to argue with this one. David Spangler <laughs> finds answers in the old writings. Mm, yeah. Nathan. Nathan stands. Rosiest view, i.e. most likely to think of the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. <laughs> and finally, Danny Zedmore, late arrival, who's clearly just in it for the money. Nice. Now, now he says to match each of you to a Karamazov brother.
0: Yeah, well, I think we need to stay away from that
3: one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say uh, that. Not too many good ones to choose from. Yeah, that? yeah, that's
0: true. You only get the one who anybody wants to be.
3: <laughs> and then
1: it goes downhill in a hurry.
0: Although my cat, my cat's name is Smirnichkov.
1: So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Very good. Bye. Uh, I-
0: Awesome. I just yeah, can, I, I can't actually, think of anybody but David as a race dance. I just can't do it.
1: <laughs> um, I, Brett, real quick, I, I actually do have some notes written up for an episode on the Book of Daniel, so look forward to that soon.
2: And I don't think it would take that much tempting to get us to to get you to do one on Saul, Nathan.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, considering I've been sitting on thirty pages of a King Saul novel for some years now, <laughs> True I like how to write, you know, the other two hundred. And then I'll be set.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you have to if write the other two hundred yeah. and get it published. Then it be oh set. yeah, that
3: too. <laughs> if if I could vote for one, I would say Ecclesiastes. I'd love to hear you guys wax on that.
0: <laughs> yeah, oh, we could probably man.
3: do
1: that. I mean, and and see, I was just gonna say that. I mean, the Bible episodes are the ones where David and I fight.
0: Yeah, but <laughs> the <true>. politics
1: <laughs> ones are the ones where Michael and David fight, and then like technology is where Michael and I fight. <laughs> but Bible. <laughs> I just have a hunch if we did an Ecclesiastes episode, which by the way, I might do it just for this reason, that some knuckles would be flying by the end of that one. <laughs> Battle Royal. I, mean, I'm,
0: <laughs> I imagine we all have a different view of that book.
1: Oh, you best believe it.
0: Because you and I have argued about it in the past, Nathan, not on the show, but just in uh, in, in real life, as the uh, young yeah. people say. <laughs> IRL. To right, use right. the parlance of the streets. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, my. Oh, i never wanna, I never know what those letters meant.
0: Wait, did you Napping really not enough. know that i r l meant in real life?
2: Hadn't the foggiest of notions?
0: There I don't go. even know what to say to that.
1: <laughs> sorry. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, let's – instead of responding to that remark, let's move on (laughs) to the episode proper. And we'll begin it the way we began last uh, week's meteorology episode with a brief discussion of Aristotle's work on the subject. Uh, The physics is one of Aristotle's most famous treatises. I am not sure that it is also one of his most read (laughs) treatises. Nathan, how does Aristotle conceive of physics and what prompts his investigation of the physical world?
1: Well, first of all, the Greek word phusike simply means – uh, something analogous to the Latin word natura. So Unless, it is... you're,
0: unless you're Martin Heidegger, it it, uh, it does. Because, you know, <laughs> Intro to not. Metaphysics has a long uh, discussion about how natura is a terrible translation of the Greek word that I can't pronounce.
1: Oh. <laughs> so that's how you're going to start us out, are you? Yes. So anyway,
0: <laughs>
1: uh, so for Aristotle, I'll say for Aristotle, not for Martin Heidegger, uh, Fusuke has to do with the properties of things. And by things, we mean everything from dirt all the way up to gods. Uh, As we said last time, meteorology is a somewhat deceptive title if you're reading it through modern lenses. It has to do not only with storms and rain, but also with the composition of the human body, uh, with meteors, which actually is logical if you think of the etymology, uh, and basically everything (laughs) in the sublunar world. The Fusike encompasses that and... The motions of the planets, the motions of the stars, and theories about why it is that we have motion in the first place. Now, Aristotle, when he talks about motion, he means not only geographic change. In other words, a thing starts out in one place and ends up in another place, but he also means changes within the existence of an entity. And his his word for a thing which undergoes such changes is substance uh, or Homo usia. Now, Michael, are you going to correct me in Heideggerian terms on that one?
0: I don't know if Heidegger has a has a jag about Homo usia.
1: Oh, no, no, no. It's not Homo Usia. Golly, I just went uh, Nicene Creed on that. <laughs> it's
3: Nicene, yeah. Yeah, it's, I was it's about just, to say, wow. That, that it,
1: I'm sorry, guys. It's just Usia. It's just Usia. All right. So, <laughs> um, golly. Uh, so, I mean, for Aristotle, uh, there should be a theory which connects – pretty much all things because they are part of one reality and therefore they should have a common code, if you will, or network of signification uh, that gives everything intelligibility. So as I said, the physics, you know, uh, starts with, you know, what it means for a thing to have motion, uh, for a thing to have substance, for a thing to have separation from other entities. Uh, It deals with a couple concepts that I'm going to hit real quickly and then I'm going to sort of open it up to you guys to get the other stuff in, because like the meteorology, this really is a text that could, could. well, I mean, it it deserves the examination of at least a couple podcast episodes. I'm trying to do it in just a couple minutes. One of them is the notion of causation. For okay. Aristotle, uh, a cause is not simply what we think of as one thing, one occurrence uh, that leads reliably to another occurrence and makes the second occurrence happen, but it also encompasses the composition of an object, the form of an object. Uh, it does include one occurrence, making another occurrence happen, as we believe. But then it also includes a notion of final cause, uh, or telos. And this is probably the part that modern physics, as far as I can understand it, departs from most. For Aristotle, objects have a goal or an aim or an end uh, that they, by nature, by phusike. Uh, tend towards uh, so for instance the telos of living things is to grow into the adult form of those living things so as I you know, often tell my Sunday school classes when we encounter the word uh, perfect or "teleia" in the Greek that for Aristotle, for the Greeks really for probably the first century readers of the New Testament a perfect acorn is not one that is shiny and without pockmarks, but rather a perfect acorn is an oak tree all right. Interesting.
0: So, be you perfect as I am perfect means be mature.
1: Yeah, it means let your. And you know, one of the things about that saying is, people make a mistake. I think when they don't read to the next verse, when he describes what it means for people to be perfect, namely to do what is good for the righteous and for the wicked as the Father sends rain on the righteous and the wicked. But this is not an episode on the Sermon on the Mount. It's about physics, so let me (laughs) me do a couple more little bits from Aristotle, and then I'll sort of hand it off to you guys so you can talk about any bits that you want to highlight. One other thing is that for Aristotle, uh, every motion, and remember by that we mean not only geographic change, but also substantial change, it has to have some sort of prior motion, Every motion comes from another motion, which comes from another motion, which comes from another motion. And so in the physics uh, and later on in his treatise on first philosophy, which unfortunately historically gets called the metaphysics or that book after physics. uh, (laughs) uh, Aristotle posits that there must be some origin of motion that is itself unmoved. All right. Now, this is one of those places where I'm going to gripe a little bit about. Uh, pop theology books, because pop theology books tend to say, well, uh, Aristotle said that God, uh, which is, of course, the figure on Michelangelo's Sistine ceiling with the white beard, uh, is the unmoved mover, and that's what Thomas Aquinas said, too. Uh, And I always want to say to that, well, first of all, Thomas Aquinas said we can logically deduce that given the character of physical reality— There probably is an unmoved mover, as Aristotle said. I can grant that. But then he immediately follows up and said, but there is no way that reason unaided by revelation will ever get to the Holy Trinity. So this is one of those things that, you know, Aristotle has a theory of motion. It involves this notion of the unmoved mover. Please, 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 oh, listeners, don't posit that understanding on a broader context than it should be posited on. That's the end of my rant. Part of the problem is that's
0: the only <laughs> section of the metaphysics most people are capable of reading, including by myself, Myself, by the way. I, uh, the, the metaphysics <laughs> is one of the hardest books I've ever given up on.
1: Let, let me ask you this, Michael. Have you gone back and revisited it after we read uh, Being in Time by Heidegger?
0: Yeah, I, I think I read it for the really? first time, and I, just, I could not make heads okay, or tails uh, of it. I,
1: after we read that and I realized that Heidegger was largely responding to the metaphysics, all of a sudden – the metaphysics made a lot more sense to me.
0: But, I mean, it, it's been five years since I tried, okay, so I ought enough, to go back and enough. give it another shot.
1: But I at guess, any rate, we're not talking metaphysics. We're talking physics. We're, what do you guys want to chime in on this?
0: That, you're, you're right. It's, if you didn't point it out, I was going to. It's that talos that connects the, the, the physics to the metaphysics. If you, if you, that, that is yeah. the link between them. And, again, it's not metaphysical in the sense that really anybody talks about metaphysics today. Um, it's just the kind of... Direction, everything's headed.
3: Right. Mm. No, one of the things that I know of of Aristotle in in terms of of causes and so forth is he's, he very much connects the cause of any kind of motion to a proper a natural pro, you know, a natural property of that object. So right. fire, you know, fire, uh, uh, steam, whatever rises because that's what it's supposed to do. And heavy th- things fall because that's what they're supposed to do. They're drawn to the center of the earth, right? Right. Uh, and uh, and you know, so I, I, it's very interesting because I, I can see there there's clearly um, something which must have been derived from observation at some level that then you know got turned a little bit. Uh, because of their, their particular philosophical bent and their desire to connect cause to purpose.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. I have right. a friend – Just I to have a
1: piggyback f- back on that real quick, Michael. No, go ahead. Just to piggyback on that, I mean – and that is one of the things that you see in pretty much every one of, of Aristotle's scientific treatises in the modern sense is that he says we cannot be content with mere observation, but we need to establish a system of first principles that govern the whole system. Mm-hmm. And Todd's absolutely right. I mean, that is an absolute necessity, not because of some sort of you know personal defect on their part, but because by definition that's what philosophy is for the old Greeks. Sorry to cut you off, Michael. Go ahead.
0: No, I, I have a friend who's a biochemist, and we had him and his wife over for dinner a few weeks ago, and he for somehow we got on the subject of Aristotle, and he just he he was irate that uh, Aristotelian principles dominated science for so long, and kept people back from you know discovering the geocentric the geocentric the heliocentric universe <laughs> that's how little i know about science i think the the sun revolves around the earth um, the the in 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 fact this, this kind of philosophical approach the first principles approach that aristotle's interested in actually held physics back for centuries millennia even
3: uh, well, one thing one thing that's interesting though is that there that there was a heliocentric model long before copernicus and right, it was Greek. Right. It was Greek. Hippocrates. I mean, it, 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 uh, uh, it's it's not. Um, it, perhaps that was why that model fell fell aside and was was sort of ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's. I, I think it's certainly not true that. Well, now I don't know. I mean, I, I I shouldn't speak where I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: How Wittgensteinian? <laughs> yes.
2: Well, it, it 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 does seem I I don't know it 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 does seem a little modernly cranky to be angry uh, to 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 feel actual anger at you know someone as ancient as Aristotle for not I don't know having invented the telescope and been able to you know I, I do see- all the kinds of math. <laughs> I I think his problem was
0: less with Aristotle and more with the people who kind of put him on a pedestal after him and who said, well, whatever, whatever we're doing needs to fit in with these first principles. Mm, Fair enough. Which kind of leads us to the next question. Mm-hmm. Despite the common notion that the medieval era has nothing to do with physics, in fact, Aristotelian physics does largely survive into the Middle Ages, and several major philosophers, including Aquinas and Jean Buridan, uh, advanced that field in some key ways. David, you are a medievalist. And I'm glad you're back because I know that if I'd pitched this question <laughs> to Danny Anderson, he would have stared blankly at me. Um, t- tell me about tell me about physics Across in the Middle sky. Ages.
2: Wheel. Um... First, I'd I'd never heard of uh, Jean Bourdin. I never heard of him. You never heard um, of his
0: famous ass? Uh,
2: nope, <laughs> nope. No, I I have neither heard of of that it's nor of him. Moment. Um, so yeah, so I looked him up, and he had something to do with momentum or something. Anyway. I don't. I'm not good enough at actual physics to be able to understand medieval physics, dude. Um, so I, I, I was, I was completely at sea. So I did what I usually do when I'm completely at sea, which is I went to the discarded image. Yay! So I'm just going to bunt on this and read you some C.S. Lewis. You're welcome. Uh, the fundamental concept of modern science was, till recently, that of natural laws, and every event was described as happening in obedience to them. In medieval science, the fundamental concept was that of certain sympathies or antipathies and strivings inherent in matter itself. Everything has its right place, its home, the region that suits it, and if not forcibly restrained, moves thither by a sort of homing instinct. Thus, while every falling body for us illustrates the law of gravitation for them, uh, medieval thinkers, for them it, it illustrated the kindly inclining of terrestrial bodies to their kindly stead, to uh, the place that they are naturally at home, the earth. Um, so if you're thinking of physical objects and their motions, yeah, the, uh, Aristotle's notions of, of causality, First causes that was still in there, but there's almost uh, uh well it it it's it's the last line of Dante's paradiso right um what makes the universe go around is the love that moves the sun and stars mm-hmm. so that um motion is explained by everything in some sense moving towards the place that it wants to be, and ultimately the direction of 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 everything. Um, is towards God, though its proximity to him is going to be um, dictated by its nature. You know, earth, the heaviest things, they move towards the center. Fire, fire can move up. Uh, the, the highest air moves the next highest. Water moves a little bit above that. Um, and and it's, it, it's, it's, a, it's almost a kind of aliveness in the way that it's spoken of. Uh, at least poetically, um, Lewis says that you know this does not necessarily mean that medieval uh, uh, medieval thinkers were, were animists who actually thought of as the fire trying to leap up into the air. But um, well, as he says, that's 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 no less personifying nature than us thinking of nature in terms of laws which things obey. Um, and honestly, I'm medieval enough to think that. Um, imagining the motions uni- the of the universe as obedience to loves, as obedience to laws, is uh, maybe a little more compelling to me.
0: Compelling, but does it describe reality?
2: <laughs> uh, everything loving and moving around because it loves to, it loves to be there. Why not? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
3: what's interesting is the, the the persistence of the ptolemaic system with the stars uh, as it were embedded in these crystalline spheres or what have you that 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 orbit mm-hmm. the earth and that being the final the final material thing before you reach the the the, the presence of god i mean that mm-hmm. that is the picture that they you know they held on to um and You know, the the, the, the multiple spheres which do start with the earth in the center and grow outward as you become more and more heavenly, more and more spirit-like as it were. And I guess the stars were thought of in that way. They're right there. They can't reach God, but they can get darn close. Much closer than us. (laughs) Indeed.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And, and, well, and in Dante's uh, Paradiso, you actually see... um, the the souls of the just you know occupying the the heavens that correspond to those spheres um and not feeling like you know they're they're kind of shoved off into the suburbs of heaven because they aren't in the in the sphere that's closest to god but they have kindly inclined they have moved to the to the sphere that is most uh consonant to their own uh, moral nature which in some way corresponds to this physical sphere that they're in. So it's this it's a universe of 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 physical uh physical correspondences and moral correspondences um all working together. Not very much like modern physics, I imagine.
0: Hard to make a cell phone that works on those principles, I imagine.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Who needs cell phones?
3: You don't need one with those principles, that's right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, Todd. Uh, Grubbs put Dan on the defensive last week, and I'm going to do the same thing to you. But instead of pinning you between the Bible and the ancient Greeks, I'm going to throw the romantics at you. This is Edgar Allan Poe's poem, Sonnet to Science. Science, true daughter of old time thou art, who alterest all things with thy peering eyes. Why prayest thou thus upon the poet's heart? Vulture, whose wings are dull realities, how should he love thee? Or how deem thee wise, who wouldst not leave him in his wandering to seek for treasure in the jeweled skies, albeit he soared with an undaunted wing? Hast thou not dragged Diana from her car and driven the Hamadryad from the wood to seek a shelter in some happier star? Hast thou not torn the Naiad from her flood, the Elfin from the green grass, and from me the summer dream beneath the tamarind tree? The shot has been fired, Todd. Does Poe have a point, or does he miss the whole idea of science?
3: Well, the answer's yes, I think. Um, <laughs> right? Uh, I like him. <laughs> I you know, on one on one hand I do feel like saying it at two, Edgar. Um, but uh but you know, I I don't I I can understand where he's coming from. I mean, if I if I look at what he's saying here. Um, and I won't pretend to do an analysis of this text, but I do see, <laughs> I do see um, two pictures. He's, he's, he equates or personifies science as um, as related to time, and as, as as a vulture, right? And the vulture preys on dead things, and he asks, "Why are you preying on the poet's heart?" Uh, with a parenthetical addendum, I suppose, as it, as though it were really dead. Um you know, science itself is seen here as a deadening agent, and um, if i if I look at the romantics and the, and the things that they were most concerned with and most interested in, i e. wonder at nature, uh, at, at beauty, uh, life and vitality, and so forth. Um, correct me if i 'm wrong, gentlemen. Um, you know those things, when looked at as as Poe says here, with the eyes of science, the ever peering eyes of science, lose they lose out um, the notion of nature, which is beautiful and uh, which inspires wonder in the heart of the poet to to <laughs> I can't think of anything other to say than to say to wax poetic, um, to, 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 ply his trade, um, in response, uh, when science peers too deeply, it just dissects all of that, um, in, in such a way as to, to remove life from it. So you have this image of death, um, and the the imagery gets more violent, right? I mean, dragged Diana from her car, driven the Hamadryad from the wood to seek a shelter in some heavier star. Hast thou not torn the Naiad? I mean, these these are violent images. I suppose it is the vulture ripping apart these um, beloved uh, uh, spiritual beings. I mean, goddess of the the wild nymphs of the wood and the forest, uh, or the the water rather. Um, They're violently separated from the place uh, that serves as their playground, um, that the poets and 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 writers of literature would uh, would expound upon. Um, So, you know, he's he's pretty clear in his evaluation of what science of the time was doing um, or had the potential to do. Um, and I think it's it's certain you know so I, I, I do say he I think he does have a point in in, in that science can be practiced in a way um, that is deadening that is um, I, I mean the example that I'm, I'm thinking of is the overemphasis of mechanization that was clearly going on scientifically in uh, in the late 18th 19th centuries following uh, of yeah well yeah indeed indeed following newton and and by mechanization i 'm not just talking about the physical world because i if i 'm not mistaken, uh, physical sciences didn 't quite get the same derisive attitude as biological sciences did or proto biological sciences did um, but when i 'm speaking of over mechanization of things i 'm talking about the view of the heart as a pump and the view of the hand as a mechanical Uh, as a mechanical thing that was really on the rise at around the turn of the 19th century. I mean, medical uh, anatomy was big. And if you look at those anatomical catalogs, you see drawings that really portray the human body as a machine. And, I mean, I think that Mary Shelley is responding to this, too, in Frankenstein. Oh, sure. Um, And and so, you, you know... It, there is something to be said. I, I think he's got. I think he's got a point. At the same time, I think he does miss something um, of what's going on in the hearts and minds of real scientists. Um, and I mean, this is anachronistic, but I, I, I point to Richard Feynman all the time, um, famous Nobel Prize winner of this century, the twentieth century rather, um, who really spoke in in quite. Uh, eloquent terms about the wonder of studying things. Um, he has a book that is entitled um, uh, The Pleasure of Finding Things Out. Um, the science, you know, the scientific endeavor for the scientist, for those who who think about what they um they do um, in terms that go beyond the clinical, um, I, I I think is a a place of real where where real beauty is expressed. Um, and you know, I don't know the culture of the time of the of the early uh, first half of the 19th century um, when Poe is writing and when the romantics are, are really flourishing. Um, but, um, you know, if they're taking bacon at his word um, to vex nature, to reveal her secrets, his um, language he used, um, I, I, I can see where he's coming from. I mean, he, um,
0: he hated bacon.
3: Yeah, in his Who can own like, hate Bacon, in his, well, his own
0: his own quasi scientific treatise, Eureka, I believe he calls him Hogish or something. It's it's some <laughs> it's some terrible pun on uh, on Francis Bacon's name.
3: That's that's that's, that's sweet. Oh, uh, um, yeah. Well, I, I I'm not surprised. I, I it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, but I, I know I know a little Wordsworth, and Wordsworth is a little bit mixed, right? I mean, Word, Wordsworth sure. has a he has a terrible uh, statement. So, I mean, one one thing I printed out long ago for some other reason um, was I believe from the tables turned, um, where th- these words are, are are given. If you don't mind me re- reading poetry, um, sweet is the lore which nature brings. Our meddling intellect misshapes the beauteous forms of things we murder to dissect enough of science and of art close up those these barren leaves come forth and bring with you a heart that watches and receives there's you know i is that a positive view of 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 science or negative it's negative certainly in in i, mean, I hear that language of dissection so i'm hearing the same thing from him of
0: course you got the but, arts in there too
3: Yeah, right, right, that's right. Um, But I think there is he is he using the word art as the practical.
0: Yeah, Yeah, maybe science
3: as scientia, right? Techne, right?
0: Or is he or is he talking? Is he talking Rousseau, who Mm. when he condemns the sciences and the arts, is condemning what we think of as the sciences and the arts?
3: Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, that could be, but but I, you know, I mean, I lo- art yeah.
0: mur- I'm I'm sorry to g- I get hung up on this, but I think of like Ansel Adams shooting all those birds. He made all those beautiful paintings of. Mm. In, in some <laughs> sense, art has to kill too, to to not dissect, but to represent.
3: Hmm.
2: You, mean mm. you mean Audubon?
0: You mean Audubon? I'm sorry, who did I say?
2: Ansel Adams. Adams.
3: Ansel Adams. Yeah. Because if that's the
2: case, because so, uh, if that's the case, he shot like you know the Sierra
3: Madres and the Rockies and such. <laughs> Half Dome is now dead. Uh, yeah, but but I mean, I look at the last the last two lines there. Come forth and bring with you a heart that watches and receives, and I see the romantic inclination there of the appreciation for the beauty of nature, and 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 there's an, there's a very clear observational. Notion going on there, where uh, appreciation for what beauty is there is clearly in the heart of, of of the poet.
0: Right. What we're talking about is this disenchantment that takes place under a certain brand of science, and yeah. I, I think there's a there's a push in, in in more recent times to from scientists who say, "Well, our world is still enchanted. It's just a different sort of enchantment than Poe's."
3: Mm. That,
0: wasn't Richard, Richard Dawkins' most recent book is about that too, I believe. Although I didn't read it.
3: I, I haven't either. I tried to avoid Dawkins. Uh, <laughs>
0: sure, but but he's, he's yeah. responding to the same thing. He's saying yeah. that there's, a, there's a scientific enchantment that pushes scientists into science, I would think. Yep.
3: Oh, there oh. absolutely is. There absolutely is. Um, and... Uh so I, yeah, well, we'll talk more about this later, actually, because I think when we t- get to sort of modern physics, quantum mechanics, there's, and, and mysticism and whatever, uh, have you, um, there's connections there, too, um, mm-hmm. with with the same idea. Anyway, um, you know, I think it's interesting to 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 think about others, the, the romantics, really, in many ways. I, I think they're... Largely responding not just to industrialization, which is when I, what I was taught, as the Romantics are, are are reacting to the Industrial Revolution and and the you know and the the rationalism of the Enlightenment. Um, but I I do think that there is something to be said uh, for their reacting to science and dead clinical science, um, which uh, obviously is very connected to those other those other things. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blake, William Blake had nothing good to say about Newton. I mean, he, 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 I shouldn't say nothing good. He saw his intellectual prowess, but he, he says that he left no room for God <laughs> or imagination. Mm. And um, that, you know, his, his, his um, is it a painting or a lithograph? I don't remember of Newton um, sitting on this you know, natural uh, backdrop and drawing out this abstract uh, geometric figure um, Blake is you know Bla- 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 blake doesn 't does, he does not like what 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 Newton has done um, which by, is so
0: funny because Newton wrote way more theology than he did physics isn 't that right i mean he, he had these very strange eschatological
3: ideas yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no very very much so he was uh, he i, I don 't know a volume of 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 you know, paper spent on 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 things, but he de- he has a lot of theological writings. Absolutely,
0: which which mm. he seemed to believe would be his true legacy, in which basically nobody reads anymore.
3: Right, right. That's that's right. Yeah. Although I don't
0: know how many people read the Principia either. So,
3: no, not not many.
0: <laughs> I think he I think he's mostly sur- survived as the image of the guy getting hit on the head with an apple.
1: <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> although I, I have assigned an English translation of the Principia to a freshman comp class and they were able to comprehend it pretty
3: readily Did you did you just do the preface or did you, because the preface is really very interesting from a perspective of setting up the scientific method
1: You know, I can't remember, it, it was the section excerpted in the uh, the Penguin Enlightenment reader
3: Okay. Okay
0: I mean there's a real case to be made that the most important text of the enlightenment is not kant or hume but the mm. principia i mean cuz cuz yeah. really all the sciences and a good deal of the philosophy end up remaking themselves in the image of the principia
3: yeah right yeah so um you know the the interaction and you know th- this this question is actually really intriguing for me but the interaction between the romantics and the science of their day is really, really interesting, and I have a little funny story. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you know the name of Sir Humphrey Davy, who mm-hmm. – he was sort of – I mean he's, he's kind of like – he's almost the Bill Nye of his day some, in some ways. Um, a big you know, influence
0: he, on Frankenstein, I believe. <laughs>
3: uh, yeah, yeah. Well, he was friends with both Coleridge and, and Wordsworth. And uh, it, the story goes that um, one one Humphrey Davy had there's a there's a quote of his that's in a a book I've got um, that I don't have with me unfortunately um, where he says I have never experienced any greater pleasure than than when breathing uh, uh, nitrous oxide. And uh, so, so
0: when it you, feels so good to get stoned.
3: <laughs> well, so Coleridge—you can imagine—Coleridge might have experimented with him, uh, <laughs> if if the uh, Kubla Khan story is correct. Um, uh, right? I mean, he might be tempted. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what's the gateway drug on to a what, stately
2: but... drag racing track. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. Anyway, I've gone on long enough.
0: Well, yeah, let's move on then. Um, I don't know what it says about me that I am having the physicist explicate romantic poetry and the English professor explain quantum physics, but uh, here we are anyway. Nathan, the 20th century is probably the biggest century for physics in all of human history. Uh, Other than maybe the 18th, I think they could probably duke it out. Um, Can you give us a quick rundown on some of the major discoveries of the 20th century? I'm sure Todd is going to be able to fill in any gaps you leave.
1: Well, I'm going to hit uh, three high points, uh, and yeah, you're right. I mean, this is—I uh, feel like I'm, I'm sitting across a chessboard from Todd. I'm going to—he's going <laughs> to let me make a few moves, but I'm never really in this game. So, yeah, but how uh, do you—how
0: do you know that the game you're looking at is the game that's really taking place, anyway? <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, whatever that means. So, point number one, and like I said, I'm just going to hit sort of three high points. Number one is uh, the notion of radioactive decay. Uh, This is something that emerges very, very early in the 20th century and the late 19th, depending on how you date things. Uh, But this is the notion that um, material atoms, if you will, are not inherently stable physically, uh, but that in fact uh, they – well, I mean, as the the theory indicates, they break down. Uh, Things happen to their nuclei, uh, and as a result, they can actually affect the inner atomic structure of neighboring matter – uh, now, this is just an like a, just an utter revolution, I, I would say, in the way that we understand matter. Uh, it certainly has antecedents in the work of Michael Faraday in the 1840s, uh, but in the 20th century, largely with the work of Marie Curie, uh, the the Polish physicist, uh, it really becomes the basis for a lot of things that we take for granted: uh, mm-hmm. nuclear energy, X-ray photography, so on and so forth. So. Uh, Radioactive decay is number one. Number two, I would say, uh, is the the theories of general and special relativity. Uh, And these are emerging out of uh, papers and eventually a book uh, by, of course, Albert Einstein. Uh, And the notion here is that what a classical mechanical view of physics would view as a sort of constant coordinate set uh, that we can intellectually map onto material space Uh, is in fact something more like uh, a series of, and I'm going to probably use a metaphor that's outdated here, uh, but a series of wells. Uh, So in other words, what counts as a straight line when you get onto a large enough scale is actually dictated by the presence or absence of massive bodies uh, so that the old Euclidean notion uh, that parallel lines ultimately travel infinitely uh, without intersecting uh would be true in that kind of a co- coordinate system but that the astronomical uh sphere of reality if you will is not in fact that sort of system all right number 3 uh is what michael mentioned in the question namely quantum physics uh this one i'll admit is the is the one that gives me the most trouble uh but if i can take a a running attempt at it uh quantum mechanics is a series of, of mathematical speculations that bears out uh in a series of experiments uh basically noting that on a small enough plane you know general and special relativity deal to a large extent with very very large realities uh quantum mechanics deals largely with very 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 small realities once you get to that small level uh our natural instinct to say that reality is uh, sort of an analog continuum to where there is a midway point between any two given points in space, again, uh, derived from a Euclidean notion of geometry, uh, ultimately doesn't turn out to be true at a subatomic level. Uh, so the quantum in quantum mechanics refers to discrete levels uh, of possibility on the atomic level or, or on the uh, in the structure of atoms. All right uh so like i said i mean those are those are three uh that I can give an English professor's understanding of uh i'll go ahead and say that a there was a time when I was a y- much younger man and i hadn't spent uh fifteen years doing you know humanities type stuff that actually I could actually do some of this math uh but like my high school spanish my uh high school physics has largely well decayed
3: so <laughs> right. Todd, how did I do? Uh, not, not no, not not bad at all. I mean, I, I, I would I would I would point to, uh, well, certainly the theoretical developments of relativity and quantum mechanics are the uh, are are the two pieces mm-hmm. um, of of development that the sort of launch as of 1905 and, and and into the 20s for quantum mechanics. Radioactive decay is is one of the phenomena that uh that that spawns the development of quantum mechanics. Um, and, you know, there are some other experiments that, that, uh, are important that, uh, one could, one could talk about. Um, uh, but, uh, I don't think we want to need to spend the time to do it here. Um, your description of general relativity, absolutely, um, right. And the way that I like to talk about that, um, is, you know, we think that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, right? And that's true in Euclidean geometry. Um, but... The straightest, uh, the, the 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 shortest distance between two points in the presence of a massive body like the Earth, is not, uh, uh, you know, a, a quote unquote straight line as we would as we would imagine it. I mean, if you look, one of the, one of the, the easiest way to illustrate this, um, is by analogy. Um, if I think about the way that I fly, if I fly to Japan and I, I do research there, so I I that frequently do. Um, when I fly there, I don't go, as I would imagine, as a straight line. I don't go straight to Tokyo from here, which would be more or less to stay at the same latitude. Um, I would, in fact, fly over Alaska, and that's shorter. And it's shorter because I'm flying on a globe. Um, and now, if you can, if you can go, that's a two dimensional thing, right? I mean, a two dimensional map, you would say, oh, I'm going to take a ruler out and draw the line between the two points, and that's, that's where I would fly. But you put that onto a, a sphere, um, there's a curvature. And the curvature dictates a different path being the shortest. So in, in, in space, you know, space we think of as three-dimensional. And, you know, curvature of space is hard to, 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 to figure out. Um, but there are ways in which um, uh, the presence of mass in Einstein's theory... Um, causes that space to warp in such a way that the straight you know the, 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 the shortest distance is not in fact a straight line um, but uh yeah i mean that's that 's heady stuff that 's not my level of expertise at all i 'm much closer to quantum mechanics um, um, which as as i 've said you did you did reasonably well i mean the issue is um, uh, it, well, we'll talk about it next, I think, <laughs> the next question. So I'm happy to let that one go for then.
0: Well, let's move on to the next question. Uh, there is a definite <laughs> tendency among non-scientists who discuss quantum mechanics to head in the direction of mysticism. And, and my suspicion is that uh, this drives quantum physicists close to crazy um, but I'm not a quantum physicist, so you tell me, uh, Todd. What sorts of metaphysical conclusions, if any, is it right to de- derive from Heisenberg and Schrodinger and people like that?
3: Sure. Well, uh, so one of the, I, I mean, it, and it does drive us crazy. <laughs> um, in some of the some of the worst pseudoscience actually comes out of of people like Deepak Chopra and uh, and those who want to utilize some of the concepts from quantum mechanics to do more than it ought to do.
0: Uh-huh.
3: Um, <laughs> uh, you know, nice I, it, there, there are people I, I'm trying to be kind.
0: <laughs> Deepak uh, Chopra is probably not going to hear this. So,
3: <laughs> What? <laughs> That's too bad. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, there, there is, um, there is a desire, I think, especially in, in, in light of um, – uh, well, postmodern philosophy often uh, will we'll sort of interface in this way with quantum mechanics and take quantum mechanics for a ride and say, okay, well, if if uh, there is no such thing as certainty in a physical sense, um, then everything we do is justifiable. Everything we do every, – everything we conclude philosophically about mind and consciousness and, and how we deal with ideas and so forth, it's all um, – you know we we can justify everything by pointing to quantum mechanics um just like people point to uh special relativity which is a um a theory concerning um, the way distance, you know lengths and times vary when when fast when there's fast relative velocities between an observer and something else um that relative that relativity gets translated into the moral sphere immediately and people say, well, Einstein says everything's relative, so everything's relative, including <laughs> – uh, at, at which point I say, okay, take a step off the nearest building and see what happens. Um, you know, so uh, – you know what's what, I
0: refute Barclay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, you know, so, so one of the things that quantum mechanics says is that there is a um, – an important – uh, yeah. When you do in a, a physical experiment, um, the results of the experiment um, are impacted by the fact of observation. So if, if I were you – know, normally if I think of a, a – let's think of an electron. Just imagine an electron flying along. Um, if I make a measurement of the electron's position and velocity and I know that there aren't any forces acting on it to divert its path – Um, so that it it follows along a a classical trajectory. Um, I know uh, know, 10 seconds down, down the road where it will be with precision. Quantum mechanics says no. You don't know that. You have to measure it again if you want to know its position at a later time because it is not to be thought of as a billiard ball. But rather, in terms of what's quantum mechanically known as a wave function, um, or a, a you know a packet of probability, so that there might be um, there's a probability that you'll measure it in this location or that location, and some probability may be very very high, but there's a non-zero probability that you might measure it off of what we would call the classical trajectory, mm-hmm. um, and so. Uh, you know, one of the things that happens when we realize this, and and there are experiments that verify this notion, um, and, and I, I've I've seen them done. I I, <laughs> I believe the results. I mean, there there is a wave like nature to the electron, um, and other things that we used to think of as classical billiard ball like particles. Um, uh, you know, one of the things that happens is that people therefore say um, there is no position uh, in an intermediate state between two measurements. That so you can't talk about the electron as having a position. Um, this is uh, this is related to what's known as the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. Um, that's the that's the um, uh, that's the sort of the standard interpretation. This is the way quantum mechanics is is generally presented, um, and and because of that, um, people are very quick to make statements about God. Well, obviously, God can't know where the the electron is in its path between the two measurements that you made, and so you get a you get a a, a a conclusion being drawn about God's sovereignty and His omniscience, um, which is very interesting to me. That science will suddenly start making pronouncements about the character and attributes of God, um, <laughs> which it's not supposed to do. Um, so, uh, so, so that kind of that kind of uh, um, Metaphysical wanderings, I guess, um, out in the weeds, where you make you you suddenly draw grand conclusions well outside the realm of of what you are, really ought to be doing, is is rampant in in modern physics. Um, there are lots of other uh, examples that perhaps one could uh, could point to. Um, you know, a hallmark of quantum mechanics is is this notion of chance, um, and 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 that. Um, uh, in in reality, uh, one can never know. For instance, one can never know when a radioactive atom is going to decay. Um, it just does. It does according to a law that if you take a large ensemble of those atoms, you can predict how many will decay um, at a, a given time, a given moment. But you can't look at any one atom and say it's going to decay tomorrow at 730.
0: That is a weird way of talking about a law, isn't it?
3: Well, it's a it's a statistical law. It's a law or a probabilistic law. Uh, it, 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 it it is weird. I mean, admittedly, this is why I like teaching this stuff. Actually, <laughs> one of the reasons why I like teaching this stuff is because it does mess with your understanding of what a law is. Um, but at the same time, I mean, a law is is merely, in scientific terms, a law is um, is the result of repeated observations. Uh, of a controlled situation in which you observe a phenomenon that is repeatable and predict, you know, predictable, at least something is predictable, right? Right. Uh, and, you know, in, in, in going back to the, the idea of an, of an atom or an electron that's, that's, uh, that's flying along in space, the wave function, this wave representation of the position of of this electron – um, the The center of it moves along the track the, the classical trajectory, um, but if you were to make measurements along the path, you would find that the electron is not always precisely at the center of the tra- trajectory, but you will you will measure it with with some probability to be off the classical trajectory but the center of that of that of that probability function follows the same laws that newton would have um, would have proposed for five hundred years before four hundred years before. Um, so uh, you know what really? can you? What, yes. So my head's exploded. <laughs> um, I, and I, you know what, the question oftentimes comes down to what is real. I, I hear. I know it's 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 Morpheus responding to Neo. Um, what is real? <laughs> uh, well, what is real has has maybe shifted. What we what we say is uh, the real representation of an electron absent absent measurement. Is this probability function, and we can make mm-hmm. predictions about this probability function, and we can talk about the dynamics of that probability function, how it behaves, um, how it evolves with time. But until we make a measurement, we can't really treat the electron as a particle.
0: We've kind of moved back to Pythagoras, right? And and now mathematics is the center of the universe
3: again. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> and we won't. We won't. Yeah. <laughs> well what 's interesting another another interesting point is that that uh, this wave function the quantum mechanical wave function um, there's some debate as to whether it is really an it, it is an ontological concept or is it an epistemic concept <laughs> and and there are there are people on both sides of that mm-hmm. um, there are people who would argue that no in fact um, the electron really is um, a particle. But um, there are wave aspects that uh, manifest themselves depending on how you look at the, the situation. Um, and and um, others would argue uh, that no, in, in fact, it, it really is a wave. Um, uh, and still others would then go and, and say, no, the, heart, the whole darn thing is a particle always and we just can't know. But there's something that presents us from being able to know? So, so this wave function merely talks of is an, it's an expression of our ignorance, mm-hmm. um, and I'm drawn to that too. But uh, uh, and I don't have an you know I don't have an answer. I I, I, I know what quantum mechanics predicts. I know that its predictions are reliable and i i unless i'm really playing the gadfly with my students i don't i don't do too much of <laughs> this mucking about with um with with the metaphysical uh implications and 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 such
0: i was told not to listen to any anyone any non-physicist who uh, talks about quantum physics essentially because <laughs> it gets you it gets used for so much balderdash
3: it it can <laughs> it certainly can so that's probably good advice
0: Well, David, um, if you're anything like me, uh, (laughs) this is making your head spin, and I think I heard you crying over there, so I think that was you. Um, It can be daunting for laymen like us to gaze into this atom. I remember, for example, having my mind absolutely blown when I read that on an atomic level, the the solid things, the things I experience as solid are in fact mostly empty space. So I'm going to ask you a question that's not exactly about physics. Is there a way to strike a balance between practical living and scientific knowledge? How do, how much do non-scientists like you and me need to think about the atom at all? And (laughs) what's the truth that's involved in, in these conversations?
2: Yeah, I heard about that empty space inside the atom. And if you, uh, if you shrink that empty space, then you like shrink the person and then your kids get lost in the backyard.
1: Dude. Yeah, <laughs> Rick Moranis had something
2: to do with that one. <laughs> um, well, there, I'm going to have to come at this by analogy. And and first of all, Todd, I just have to say, there was this time back when, um, back when I finished my PhD, and I felt really smart back then. And I don't feel <laughs> smart anymore. I I, yeah.
0: That was three weeks ago, <laughs> listeners. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's relative. Um. <laughs> The I'm going to come at this uh, by analogy because that's all I can do uh, and give you one way not to react and then two ways that I think can be helpful. First, the first way uh, not to react is like that guy in the Little Caesars commercial who hears that he doesn't have to wait for his pizza and begins taking off his shirt while yelling, there are no rules. <laughs> At which the point, the, the, the you know, the man behind the counter shell and put his shirt back on and he says, there's one rule. All right. So don't, don't, you know, don't your first reaction to this quantum thing should not be there are no rules. Hold we on, can't I just... just put
0: my shirt back on.
2: Yeah. <laughs> this is a oh. no video
3: show, is it?
2: <laughs> no, no, it's not. Mercifully. <laughs> Chat roulette. No. Um. So, yeah. So that's the first way not to be. Don't, don't be the guy in a little Caesars commercial. There are no rules. Two two possible reactions uh, that I think can be helpful. The first is uh, Elwin Ransom's reaction, actually, in Out of the Silent Planet, when he first leaves Earth and travels in space and comes to realize for the first time that while he'd always thought about space as being something out there, Earth was home, Earth was here, and space is out there and the first time he leaves Earth and he's traveling in space the first for the first time he realizes he had always already been in space
0: mm-hmm.
2: All right um, the mystery was not something that was off safely over there. <laughs> He was always, he was always already hurtling at massive velocity through the mystery. All right. So, on one hand, um, I think it's it's healthy to have your mind blown, um, not only by the the immensities of space that are beyond you, but also by the immensities of space that are within you. Um, the your mystery is always the mystery is always closer to you than your own pulse, and I think that's a I think that's healthy to let that sink in as a layman, a layperson,
0: whatever, <laughs> a
2: not scientist guy. <laughs> the second way that I think is helpful, and this is interesting, I, I've, I've been reading, a, a, I was reading an article about uh, Calvin, ta- John Calvin talking about prayer. And John Calvin, guy that's pretty confident about the idea that God's in control of everything. But it actually says some surprising things about prayer. Namely that, yes, God is sovereign and yes, God ordains things, but because we don't know, because of the uncertainty involved, we should not be paralyzed by the uncertainty and so never pray and not be able to cease to function, but instead to proceed according to um you know, our best understanding of what ends are good and, and, and pray for those. Um, we shouldn't let the mystery paralyze us and prevent us from, from, from functioning uh, according to what is wise at the level that, that we exist. So I guess, you know, by analogy, I'm going to present those two, those two ways of doing it. On one hand, let your mind be blown. The mystery is closer to you than your own pulse. You have immensities within you. The mystery is not over there. <laughs> but on the other hand, don't let the mystery of the of those uncertainties par- uh, uh, paralyze you and make you feel as if the way that your ordinary life functions is no longer meaningful.
0: Nathan, uh, I mean, anything to add to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that for those of our listeners who are also uh, more inclined towards the humanities than towards the sciences, I think uh, David, first of all, has pointed up a nice parallel with theology, right? Uh, and actually that passage from Calvin reminded me a great deal of the very last passage of the consolation of philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, since we know all these things, let us continue to pray, Yeah, uh, which, <laughs> you know, on, on a, on a level of, uh, you know, non-contradiction makes absolutely no sense, but, for some reason, it's satisfying because Boethius says it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, if you think about, you know, for instance, uh, the sort of postmodern sociological analysis of, you know, the way that language works, the way that human existence is, you know, a, a network of connections, uh, the fact that you know the human will is itself a linguistic construct on some level. Uh, I remember reading this in a Stanfish book, but I've read probably half a dozen of them. They blend together on me. Um, He said that every deconstructionist, uh, when he locks up his office for the evening, walks about on the ground that he just deconstructed without a thought in the world. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, so I think that, you know, uh, I wouldn't say that there's a precise analogy there, uh, but I'd say that, you know, certainly we're in the same – sort of relationship to the theories of physics as we are to the theories of, uh, you know, sort of, oh, I don't even know, post-positivist sociology or, you know, uh, Richard Rorty's pragmatism in, you know, the the notion of epistemology. Uh, it's one of those things where we do the theory uh, and we know that the theory gives us ways to think about things, uh, but we... Do not, and probably are healthier, not to proceed as if it were the only way to think about things.
0: Mm. Are they kidding themselves, Todd?
3: <laughs> no, I think I think one of the things that comes to mind when I when I hear um, David's second suggestion is it, to be freaked out by this, to be paralyzed by uh, some of these these things that we've discovered. It is very much like refusing to start a marathon because you had a conversation with Zeno the other day um because <laughs> <laughs> you know you'll never finish it <laughs> i mean we have all to. Take all
1: right the- todd explain the Zeno paradox <laughs> for our listeners who aren't familiar <laughs>
3: well in order it, it, so so Zeno says that in order to make uh any progress towards a particular goal uh, if you're walking towards a, a door you have to get halfway there um and then once you're halfway there you have to Take that distance, and you have to cover half of it as well. And since you can continually divide space up, you know, down to to continually have it and have it and have it, you'll never actually make progress. You'll never actually finish and cross that line. So uh, if you believe if you believe that you'll you'll never start a race. Why would you start a marathon? Because it's long enough as it is. Um, <laughs> you'll, <laughs> you'll never actually cross the finish line. Um, and my, the reason for I, I bring that up is 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 one um, sense experience. Our, our own experience of living in the world um, is is sufficient um, to make through the day. Um, I can sit on my chair and I know I'm not going to fall through to the floor because I, I I've done it before. <laughs> Despite the fact that I know that it's it is mostly in fact um, void, uh, as it were. So, uh, you know, experience is sufficient for me to to be able to live uh, uh, during the day. But what what but what the physics does is, at least for me, is it gives me um, a a different reason to be in wonder about what I see.
0: Well, that doesn't seem scary at all.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's not scary.
0: As we go out here, um, Todd, you are in a unique position with all of these discussions because you really do have a, a foot in each camp. Um, can you explain a bit about the program you teach at at Luther?
3: Uh, yeah, sure. So um, what? Uh, in addition to teaching physics, I've, over the past uh, four years now, um, I've taught in uh, a program that we call Paideia, uh, which is the... Uh, and Paideia comes from the Greek um, uh, word for for teaching or instruction, and um, it, it is a first year core course. All freshmen, first years. I can't say freshmen. I know um, first year students take it, mm-hmm. um, and it is a, a sort of a broad introduction if you were to uh, to to study in the humanities by and large. Although we do treat scientific texts on occasion, um, it. Uh, centers around questions that are uh, you know big questions concerning the human condition in general this past fall we we uh, centered our discussions around the question of what does it mean to be human uh, or what is it that makes us human um, and this spring we're talking about uh, what is it to know something and how do we know those things that we know are reliable um, these are they, they're enduring questions they, they they are asked and have been asked and explored in a variety of venues and in a variety of ways throughout human history really um, and so by by choosing a question to center discussions on um, uh, that are broad we're able to draw from a, a large number of texts that we put before the students um, to 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 have those discussions. So some of the texts that we did this fall um, in the What Does It Mean to Be Human semester uh, are uh, from Darwin, um, Origin of the Species, Descent of Man. We read Frankenstein. We read uh, Frederick Douglass's uh, autobiography, um, uh, Dante's Inferno. We also do visual art uh, and music on occasion. So we, we did the Sistine Chapel uh, paintings of Michelangelo, and Haydn's Creation Oratorio. And we wrapped up the semester, I believe, with RUR, um, Rossum's Universal Robots, which is the, the Czech play that from which we get the word robot. Awesome. Uh, and it, you know, it was a great semester. I mean, and, it, and it's not just a semester of, of teaching uh, works from drawn broadly from literature and philosophy and so forth. Um, but it is, it's our writing course, too. So we do writing instruction, um, and uh, largely we're working in sort of the Kreider mode of the academic essay. I mean, that's that's the writing that we teach. We don't teach personal essays. We don't teach you know uh, various forms that you would in a in a, in a usual com- uh, composition course. Um, but it's a fantastic thing. I mean, I, I absolutely love teaching in this program. Um, because partly, and I, I'm going to jump your questions, your subsequent questions, I guess, a little bit, Michael. Speaking um, of disenchanting, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, it, I, I, one of the things that a liberal arts college that I think is really important for students to see is to see faculty as co- as learners with them, uh, as lifelong learners, as people who are pursuing knowledge uh, for the you know for, for their lifetime. Um, And so for me to be um, in a, you know, what is in some cases, some way is by some perspectives, a a foreign uh, place, I'm engaging in um, an act that I'm trying to encourage them to engage in. Um, And you sometimes have to drag them kicking and screaming to read Plato, for instance. Um, But uh, I, you know, I'm do it. I'm in there in the trenches with them and, and sort of. Modeling for them critical engagement, and um, it's just it's a blast. It's been the most enriching. You know, it really does. It does. It really does enrich my 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 time. Um, I, I feel like I. It would be hard for me not to be teaching in it, um, uh, and and only be teaching physics once the, once I've done this now, you know, for a few years.
0: That sounds like a wonderful program.
3: Mm-hmm yeah well it, it, it's it's it 's many years old now I think it was started in the mid eighties under a national endowment for Humanities grant um that sort of has has just continued um, and um, you know it involves a large number of faculty across the, the campus. It used to be taught solely by uh history philosophy, and english professors um, but we 've broadened it um uh, in addition to broadening the, the the material that we deal with um, to you know really be able, open to anyone who is um, is you know, who desires to teach in the program we we invite it's it 's hard for staffing reasons to get to pull people out and and, and, and teach a course um, in in this but um, there's about thirty five professors that teach in it um, during every any given year i mean our, our freshman size class sizes between usually between six uh, 640 and 680, or so. So it's sections that are small. Discussion, you know, discussion is primary, um, and uh, it's really good. It's really been a, a great thing.
0: Well, excellent. Thank you for coming on the show, Todd. Do you have anything you want to go out with, or or is uh, Padaya? A good, good way to end it as anything.
3: Yeah. Oh no, I think it's it's as good as as anything. And but I do want to at least you know verbally uh, give my appreciation to you guys for what you do. I mean this class, uh, the, this this has been a, a a watershed for me. I mean just to to think through the things you guys talk about and um, it's really been an encouragement to me. I mean I guess largely because of what teaching I'm doing in Paideia. Um But uh, you know I'm an avid listener and 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 now if we're joining forces hey all the better.
0: <laughs> yeah, now now uh you can teach us about science on a right. weekly or biweekly basis.
3: Right. Mm-hmm. Right. No. So thanks. Thanks for having me on.
0: Sure thing. Nathan, what are we talking about next week?
1: Well, next week we're going to have our third book of nature host uh on the Christian Humanist podcast. This will be Dr. Charles Hackney uh whose specialty is positive psychology. You're going to find out a little bit what that is. Uh Charles actually was on an episode of uh, Christian Humanist Profiles, if you want to go ahead and listen to that as sort of a preview for that one. Uh, Charles was fun to talk to. Uh, He digs into some philosophical questions as well as his scientific research, as Todd and Dan both do. So uh, I think all three of them are going to be great on the new show, and next week you're going to hear psychology.
0: Todd, how mm-hmm. much guff are you planning on giving Charles about the hard and soft sciences on on that program? <laughs> I mean, I know you guys don't know each other yet,
3: so yeah. I, I think time will tell. Um, no, we, I, you know, I I think we'll actually have a pretty good synergy because uh, although it's going to be very much like you guys, right? I mean, you, <laughs> we, we we're going to have two we're going to have two uh, two physical scientists and and a, and a a social scientist on on board, um, <laughs> but no, I. I I don't, I don't think I'll be too hard on him. <laughs> well,
0: time will tell. It depends we'll see. On, depends on how <laughs> aggravating he is.
3: <laughs> I think he'll be fine.
0: In the meantime, you can get in touch with us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can go to our website, which is christianhumanist.org. Uh, until next week, for Nathan Gilmore, David Grubbs, and Todd Pedler, this is Michael Farmer saying let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. The
1: sun is
0: a mass of
1: incandescent gas A gigantic nuclear furnace Where hydrogen is built into helium At a temperature of millions of degrees Yo-ho, it's hot The sun